I want to invite you to have a seat. And as you do, I want to take just a moment and dismiss our children. So if you're ages three to five, you know the drill. Uh, you can start heading that way uh, to, uh, to Hubtown Kids, Blue Station, parents and, uh, and church members. Uh, just know this. They're going to be learning this morning about that, this idea that God is infinite. That God is infinite. If you have been here recently, you know that we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark. So last week we looked at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And I really enjoyed that uh, passage. I enjoyed studying that and just some of the insights that God had shared with me. I felt like really helped me to understand what was happening. And honestly, at the end of that sermon, Jesus became more precious. He became more glorious. And, uh, and my heart just uh, swelled with reverence and awe towards, uh, toward King Jesus as he suddenly came into his temple. And I feel like, uh, and it just makes sense, that verses 1 through 11 have segued really well into the following verses, as it should in when we're looking at the Bible. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and give you a, a heads up. By the way, uh, we preach expositionally. We work through uh, the text. We, we take the, uh, the Gospel of Mark, and we'll work through that. And when we finish the Gospel of Mark, if we ever finish the Gospel of Mark, we'll find another book, and we'll work through that as well. And what's really interesting is we let uh, the, the point of the sermon be the point of the text. We make sure that those are the same thing. And if they're not the same thing, then we've got a problem. And what's really interesting is this morning, just a heads up, Jesus is recorded as preaching a bit of an expositional sermon uh, here. And so this uh, yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm like Christ. Chris is like Christ. And uh, we all should be like Christ in that way. So, um, so Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Let's look at the word of God. This is what it says. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? Here's the expositional text here. My house shall, not, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, again, we just take a moment to say, we need you. We need your blessing. Holy Spirit, we need you to remove blinders. We need you to teach us. We need you to encourage us through your word, to correct us. And uh, we look to you now and ask in faith that you'll do this, uh, even as we're instructed by this text. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's an interesting passage that we looked at last week. Jesus has set his face like a flint. He's heading towards Jerusalem. As he goes along the way three times, he says, this is what's going to happen. He foretells of his passion. I'm going to die. My life will be taken, in a, or I will lay it down, and I will die. He says, I'll be whipped. I'll be punished. I'll be spit upon. But he says, I'll rise again. 
We can imagine the, the mixed emotion that the disciples would have, that those hearing would have, and yet Jesus, face set like, the flint, like a flint, determined, heads towards Jerusalem, unhindered. He gets there. The crowds recognize that he, in fact, is their king, that he is the Messiah. Now they're confused to a large degree, but they still welcome him as such. Jesus receives that. He doesn't correct them. He receives their worship. He receives their praise. He receives their claim that he is king, that he is Messiah, that he's the fulfillment of all the promises, even the son of David. He rides into Jerusalem on that donkey. Goes straight into the, into the temple as Malachi 3 says that he will do. It says he'll suddenly the Lord will come into his temple. As he comes into the temple, it seems a bit, remember, anticlimactic because he just looks around, everybody's gone, and then he leaves. Of course, we saw that that was the very fulfillment, and a turning back of what Ezekiel had prophesied and what is, or Ezekiel had told us. The glory of God, the glory of God had departed. And now the very glory of God, the face of God in Christ had returned. Now this is the next day. And so God coming into his temple, exiting, going and sleeping that night, wakes up the next day. And this is where we pick up in verse 12, on the following day. And so he's coming from Bethany, a city there to the east of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives with the, Kid, uh, the Kidron Valley in between that and Jerusalem. We read an account that's a bit strange. In fact, this account has troubled a lot of people. So we're going to work through it this morning. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question. Parents, have you ever like done something shameful? Like maybe even, this is on, you can be honest here. This is the church, right? We're all in process. That's one of our values. You, you read it on the wall. But have you ever done something so shameful, maybe even in anger? And uh, you maybe, I don't know what it was, but just something that you, you weren't really proud of. But you turn around and you look and you've got some children that are present and they are observing. Maybe you uh, took your golf club and changed uh, its form and shape almost like somebody would a balloon animal. I was recently talking with uh, an older gentleman that went deer hunting with a rifle that was this old type rifle that would, be, would have been used over 200 years ago uh, to, to harvest deer. And he had, been, he had restored this thing and worked it out and fixed it all up. And he, had, he was out deer hunting and so excited, just a rush to be out there and to be doing this with this old, uh, old, old weapon, this old tool. And he goes to pull the trigger on a trophy buck, the, tro- the buck of a lifetime and the and the gun doesn't go off. And the deer just quickly prances out of sight. And he takes that rifle that he uh, had spent lots of time and lots of money, and he folds it around the tree so that he can have two. He told me that story now with a smile on his face, but I imagine at that moment he was a bit ashamed that he had lost his cool and done such a thing. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe it wasn't with your children. Maybe it was with your siblings. Maybe it was with your significant other or somebody that you really care a lot about. Maybe you're even engaged and they saw this happen. You might be thinking, is that kind of what happened here with Jesus? Is, are the disciples witnessing Jesus not really at his best? Are they witnessing maybe a mistake that he's made and, and he's lost his cool? Let me say at the onset that that is not what's taking place in this passage. Jesus isn't losing his cool in some sort of a sinful way that he or we should be ashamed of even as we observe the, 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 the actions of our Savior. That's not what's taking place. Uh, although it still is a bit of a peculiar passage. Why? Well, one reason I can make an observation, you can make this observation as well, that Jesus should know that it's not the season for figs, right? You may not have known that there's a season for figs, but know this, Jesus knows the season for figs, right? Mark's like, yeah, Jesus just didn't know. It was, wasn't the season for figs. Kind of a blunder here. No, that's not what's happening. Jesus, seeing that fig tree with its leaves, knows even afar off, not only that it's not fig season, but he also knows that there are no figs on that tree. And yet he still walks there. And so Mark is kind that he records for us that it's not the fig season. Jesus obviously already knew that. You might be thinking, though, is this 
Not post-traumatic stress. Is this pre-traumatic stress? Is, is Jesus just worried about what's about to happen? This is the week of the Passion. This is the second day that he's spending in Jerusalem, the last week of his life here on earth before his crucifixion. Is he stressed out? Is what's ahead of him getting the best of him? Knowing that he'll be violently killed, is he just distracted? Well, I should mention this, that some New Testament scholars believe that there's like this bud. Well, they, they don't believe this. They know this. There's this bud that grows on fig trees, and it's called, called pegim. And sometimes people could walk by those fig trees in certain seasons while they're in leaf it's the, and, and grab some of those pegims and eat them. They were apparent, they, apparently they were pleasant to eat. They weren't quite the, as good as a fig tree or as a fig, but they were still good. And so some people think maybe that's what Jesus was going to do. Maybe he was confused and he forgot. No, that's unlikely. Uh, maybe Jesus was stressed out and he forgot. No, that's not what happened. Was Jesus going to get uh, this, uh, this little bud, this, uh, similar to the yellow flower that grows on the tomato plant you know, before the tomato? Is that what Jesus was going after? That's possible. That's possible. At any rate, we know that Jesus knew what was on that tree. I'm going to show you why in just a second. But there's another reason why that it, this is confusing. Jesus' reaction to that tree seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? Some of you might be thinking, like, what's, what's going on again? Why does Jesus just lash out to this tree? Why, why did that man break the, the gun over the tree? What does that have to do with anything? Did that, that gun really sin against him in some way that it needed to be punished? Why was Jesus so angry at this tree? Why was he frustrated well, the reason this short account is so confusing is because many of us actually miss what Jesus is doing. We miss what Jesus is doing. Here's what he's doing. He is providing a visual illustration. He's providing for his disciples there firsthand and us this morning a object lesson of sorts. So as we think through this account, it, which really did happen, realize this, that Jesus is teaching us a lesson. He is giving us an object lesson. He has no malice toward this tree, and he's not confused about the time for figs, but he does want his disciples to know a truth. A truth that we'll get to in just a moment. Before we get to that, I want, before, I want to say this. Remember the Markin sandwich? Do you remember those? We've passed through uh, several of those. Mark will take uh, this account or this point and in the very middle of it, he'll sew together or he'll posit another story that will kind of nest inside of it. What that, or the purpose of that sandwich, you know, two pieces of bread and the meat in the middle is to kind of help us, not, not to kind of help us, but to, to give us the main point of what's happening here. And so if you caught it, that's what Mark has done here in our chapter or in our passage this morning. He starts this story out by telling us about the fig tree that Jesus goes and doesn't find any figs on, and he curses it. Then, at the end of that passage that we read this morning, Jesus and his disciples are heading uh, out, and then now in the morning they've coming, they're coming back into Bethany, and Peter's like, would you look at that? 24 hours later, Jesus, and that fig tree actually has withered. You said, may nobody eat of you, of you again, and sure enough, nobody will ever eat of that fig tree again. Right in the middle, Mark tells us the story about Jesus going in to Jerusalem, going up to the Temple Mount and cleansing the temple. And so you're saying, so they're connected, but how are they connected? Remember last week we read the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. The Lord suddenly coming into his temple. He came to inspect it. He came to lay eyes uh, on that space he came to lay eyes on the high priests in a, in a sense to judge the people of israel and now he has come to a verdict and he's ready to share from a distance you can't really determine whether a fig tree has fruit or not especially somebody like us we would probably wouldn't be able to tell the fruit is small, and when you're from a distance, all you can see on that tree is just the leaves. But once you get up close to inspect, you clearly and, and quickly will know whether that tree is bearing fruit or not. And in the same way, Jesus and his disciples, when they 
came up from Jericho. There, outside of Bethany, there at the top of the Mount of Olives, Jesus gets on that donkey, they lay the branches out. From that vantage point, they could see the temple. Jesus, no doubt, as he's crossing that valley, can see smoke rising from the temple. You can see the beautiful palm trees all around it, the clean walls. Quite a sight, I imagine. In the same way, if you were to approach the temple in the evening from the east, looking at it from the Mount of Olives, walking up to it from the Kidron Valley, you would be able to see lights on the side, fires gleaming on this beautiful, magnificent building, looking holy, looking set apart, looking consecrated to God. Clean and pure. Everything seems in order from the Mount of Olives, but as Jesus draws closer, as we saw in our passage last week, we find that he finds the temple is just as fruitless as that fig tree. The worship that's taking place there is just as beneficial as a fruit tree not bearing fruit. In the case of the fig tree, there was no fruit. And so what did Jesus do? Jesus cursed the tree. He cursed it. According to one lexicon, just a, a, a Bible dictionary of sorts, Cursing relates to binding utterances with negative and damaging connotations. It can convey a declaration of, wish for, or realization of judgment from God. Jesus, God in the flesh, doesn't just wish that this tree be cursed, but he curses it with his mouth. And by the way, it's interesting. This is the only destructive miracle that Jesus does from what I understand, in the entire New Testament. No other time does Jesus, his time here on earth, curse something miraculously to this point where he doesn't, it's not just a proverb, but he's declaring something to take place. And here's the thing, this is a bit of a side note, but his disciples heard him say that. Oftentimes, parents, you can think about the time when your children were young. Maybe some of you now and some of you in the future are probably worried about this, but you're thinking, I know that my children will see me. My little disciples that are walking around, they're observing all of these things, and I'm frankly a little bit worried that they are going to pick up some of my habits, and they surely will. They're, maybe you're worried that they'll even be catechized by the actions that you take, the things that you do and the things that you don't do, what you make important and what you don't. At any rate, Jesus is recognizing that principle, that his disciples in some way are like his children. In the spirit of Deuteronomy 6, he doesn't waste any time, but he uses every opportunity to teach and instruct his disciples, to teach and instruct his children. And in a way, that's what we see Jesus doing right here. He curses this fig tree, and the Bible says, Mark records, that his disciples saw it. They see this object lesson. But you ask me, what is Jesus trying to teach? What is he succeeding at teaching, I should say? I think this is one thing that we can draw from, what he's, from his object lesson, and that's this. That the purpose of a thing is determined by its creator. The purpose of a thing. This is the first point. I'm going to give you two points. We'll have a main idea at the end, a bit of an application. What does this mean to us? I've got two main ones this morning. The purpose of a thing is determined by its creator. Who had created that fig tree? The Bible makes it clear to us that Jesus is the creator of all things. And that by Jesus, through Jesus, all things what? Consist. All things continue to exist. They all stay together. How and why? By, their, by the power of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, he, in his creative work, has determined what a thing is to do and what its purpose is. The divine prerogative of God is that since He has created everything, He determines how each thing is to be used, how each thing is to be valued. 
You might be looking at Jesus right now and even still not convinced that what Jesus does to this poor little tree isn't harsh. And maybe you think it's out of line. But I would ask you this. Whose standard are you using? Whose standard are you using? And this isn't the point of the text. We're not, I'm not, you don't need, we don't need to argue or, or, or be too worried about this, the, the, the soul of this little tree. That doesn't, that's not a thing. Right? It's so sad, this tree, it lived a good life. Right? Now it's just been cursed and it withers up. If you think that Jesus is harsh, what standard are you using? You see, Jesus is the creator. Jesus is the sustainer. He has created that tree, I would argue, for that exact purpose. And yes, there were some other reasons. I'm sure many children would gather under that tree on especially hot days and they would gather the figs that had fallen and they would munch on those as a snack. Maybe they'd gather some of those up and bring them into the city and maybe they'd make a little bit of money to take care of their family. Maybe all those things happened as, as, uh, as uh, pilgrims would come into town over the years. I'm sure that they would eat the, 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 the small buds and then later the, the, the figs that made it. Sure, it had all these reasons, but I believe that its ultimate purpose was so that Jesus could teach this object lesson. That tree was created for such a time as this. And some of you, myself included, need to hear that. That the creator of the universe, he determines how things are to be used according to his pleasure, according to his purpose. It's not ours, it's not us or for us to decide. Some of you, in your lives, you've looked at a screwdriver and you thought, that would make a great chisel. Maybe in your anger, you, you looked at a hammer and thought it would make a, a great throwing axe or weapon against your brother. You look at a pot and you think, hey, that pot would make a good weapon against your brother. You look at a bed as a trampoline. I could go on and on. You look at a, at a door as an option to be closed sometimes and not at others. And that ACs, by your determination, are meant to heat the outside. Parents, can I get an amen? <laughs> you see, the creator, the creator of a thing determines its purpose. It determines its value. The fig tree was cursed because it wasn't doing what it was designed to do wasn't doing what it was designed to do. And Jesus is drawing for his disciples and he's drawing for us a parallel between that fig tree not doing what you would expect it to be doing and the people of Israel, particularly as it relates to worship of God in his temple. And so Jesus comes into the temple there in Jerusalem. In verse 15 it says, He came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeon and he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Hope you have a, a good idea of what the geography or the topography is there in that area and if not I would encourage you to, to look this up. Maybe even to, to look at a modern day uh, rendition or, or a, an artist's rendering of what it would look like um, in this day and age, but then also as compared to what it looks like today. But at any rate, the, the ancient temple that Jesus was walking into right now, it had four courts. They were all nested together. And, and Herod's rendition or he, Herod's temple as at the, well, the, that was being used at this point in time, you had the temple mount. looked much like a fortress. Lots of dirt, lots of stone, rock built all up together. This large rock wall right now, much of it still in existence today. That, that base of the temple mounts there, still there on the western wall where it's been referred to as the Wailing Wall. Jews will gather there even today and pray. On top of that mount was the court of the Gentiles. When you, re when you reached the temple mount, you were in the court of the Gentiles. So non-Jew believers that were there to worship Yahweh, they could come into that court and they would have much, not much problem to get in there. They were able to, to use that space for prayer. They were able to use that space for worship to God. Basically, like I said, that covered the entire Temple Mount. It's the largest court. It's also the farthest from the Holy of Holies where the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God rested. But the next level, if you were actually to enter into the to the to the building or to, to the actual temple, you'd be entering into the court of women. 
As you can as you can imagine, at that point in time, if you were uh, a Jew and you were a woman, you could go up to that point. Now, if you were a male, you could go one step past that into the temple. And then that's where you would stop. Of course, you had to uh, uh, be circumcised and be observing the law in every way and be washed up and all that good stuff. But really, at that point, you were done. You couldn't go any farther in. Only priests could go in. But in essence, there's a place for everyone, ideally, to come and to worship and to pray to the one true God. Even in the outermost cart or court, the one for the Gentiles, that was a place provided for reverent reflection, prayer, worship. But at this particular time in history, the court of Gentiles had been turned into what looked like a mixture between like a 4-H fair and a flea market. Wasn't a whole lot of reverence there on the top of the mountain. There wasn't a whole lot of opportunity for the Gentiles to gather and to pray. It looked like a bazaar, which was, well, fitting. It was bizarre. Animals in stalls everywhere, lots of ungodly smells, noises, tables full of money from all over the world. And instead of worshiping God there in the court of Gentiles, it had been turned into a place of business. And as Jesus says, it had been turned into a place of robbers, a den of robbers. Now, it goes without saying that the ancient world was a different place, but it's not so different that we can't kind of get a glimpse into and understand what was taking place there. At this particular time, millions of people are gathering there in and around Jerusalem. Thousands of sacrifices. Josephus says that 255,000 sacrifices would be made there in this particular week. But imagine having come from maybe, let's say, 100 miles away, maybe 60 miles, maybe even 20. Imagine having to bring an animal to sacrifice there in Jerusalem. Maybe you'd say, I can't bring the animal. It's too large. I don't know that it'll make it. It's too young. I'd have to carry it. It's just not convenient. Or frankly, I don't have any animals that are available, that are really worthy enough to be sacrificed. And so there's kind of this predicament if you're trying to honor God and worship Him according to His laws and commands and the things that He's laid down there in the temple. You're, you kind of got a predicament. So you're thinking, okay, I'll go to Jerusalem. I'll kind of take a gamble there. Hopefully the Lord has provided a lamb for me to get there in Jerusalem. And so it makes sense. You, you, uh, maybe you sell some things. Maybe you sell a couple um, spotted lambs and you take that money in hope that you can re- retrieve and secure a spotless lamb there in uh, the city of Jerusalem. Well, instead of that being that business being sprawled out it was all condensed there around the temple particularly and unfortunately there in the court of the gentiles so a lot of people were buying and selling frankly some of many of them taking advantage and being taken advantage of and what's more every adult male at that particular time would have to pay what's called the temple tax everyone would have to pay the temple tax but if you're coming from another country, if you were coming from another area, or even if you were there from Jerusalem, you couldn't use Roman money, which was the currency of the day. You would have to use Hebrew temple money. And it makes sense at that particular time, if you're going to go worship the Lord, if you're going to give him uh, just a part of your first fruits, part of your resources, and, and give it to the temple as a tithe and as a gift, it wouldn't make sense to give something that had a pagan false god on the front of it. So it was a good rule. We're not going to receive that, the priest would say, but we'll have it set up conveniently for you to where in a fair manner we will exchange your gold for this kind, this gold. Pagan gold for holy gold in some sense. And so those things make sense, right? It's not so hard for us to understand that. What's also not hard for us to understand is that when these types of things take place amongst humans, debauchery ensues. We know that. There's a dark side to this touristic economy there in Jerusalem. I've read that as high as 10% of a premium could be charged. If you needed to pay $10, in order to change that out, they would charge up to 10%. The markup for sacrificial animals was going to be absolutely similar. Now, again, it would be more expensive to purchase a 
just because of the laws of, the, uh, laws of supply and demand, it would be difficult to find a, a proper sacrificial animal at that particular time in history. And yet the prices were still, from what we understand, robbery. And even further, uh, furthermore than that, the court of Gentiles, this place that's supposed to be this reverent, holy space for Gentiles to come and pray and to worship the Lord, it was being used as a thoroughfare, as a great hall to enter into the city from the east, Mount of Olives, going through the Kidron Valley, going up through the eastern gate, going in through the temple, through the court of the Gentiles so that you can get into the heart of Jerusalem and not have to add a mile or so to your journey, depending on where you needed to get to in Jerusalem. So people would say, you know what? I'm just going to take a shortcut. I've got to carry these things. I've got to get my, my horse or my donkey or all these things that are tied to it. I've got to get them up on to this other side, maybe the, to, the, to the north end of David City. And so I'll just, I'll just take a shortcut through the temple here. So you can imagine all the noise, all the robbery, opportunists just taking advantage like sitting outside of a candy store, robbing the children blind as they walk out with their goodies or as they walk in. Ultimately, what had been determined by God to be a place of prayer, a place where those in need of salvation could gather and call upon the living God and receive blessing, receive grace in some way. That had been taken from them by the Jewish leaders. This place of prayer had become a den of thieves. So just as in the living parable of the fig tree, the temple was being managed in a way that was not in step with the divine decrees of the almighty God. Just as the fig tree was not supplying fruit for Jesus, the temple wasn't either. It wasn't bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. What was Jesus there to do? Jesus was there to stop it. And so what does he do? He cleanses the temple. He runs out, uh, runs off the businessmen and the, and the entrepreneurs, as they thought themselves to be. And when he does that, what does he say? Well, in verse 17, and he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Let me tell you what Jesus is not saying in there, and then I'll tell you what he is saying. He's, he's not saying that the church building is supposed to be where God's people pray. And he's not even advocating for a midweek prayer service. That's not the point. What he's saying is that his temple should be known as the place where those who are in need of him, they're in need of salvation, they can call out to him and they can receive it unencumbered by those appointed to care for the building. That those who need to hear from God, when they call out to him, they won't be stopped by somebody else. There's so much practical application of that passage that I can just think through in my own life. Maybe in what ways I could ask myself, how, how am I hindering people from coming to the gospel? How am I hindering people from coming to Christ and from calling out to God? Maybe by my lifestyle, things I'm doing, things I'm not doing. I'll let that marinate just for a minute. Jesus does want us to be a people that are marked with prayer. He does want his church to be a praying people. And yet what this passage is saying, what he's arguing for, what he's demanding of us is that we not rob people and trip them and be stumbling blocks as they try to come to Christ. But quite the opposite. That we come alongside of those who would repent and who are in need of grace. And we walk them humbly into the proverbial temple. But what does it mean in verse 17? Jesus, there in the temple, he's preaching an expository sermon. And you say, well, okay, you tried to convince me just a moment ago that Jesus is preaching this expository sermon. Tell me a little bit more details. I want to try to agree with you. Well, write this down. If you're taking notes, Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 56 and Jeremiah 7. Say, why do you make such a big deal about expository preaching? Because Jesus did it, right? Let's do what Jesus did. For sake of time, we're not going to read all of Isaiah 56. Our brother Dan read it earlier. But I would encourage you to go back through and look at it. I'll try to summarize it. 
God is demanding of his people. He says this in chapter uh, 56, verse 1. And he says, keep justice. Keep justice. Do righteousness. My salvation is coming and my righteousness will be revealed. Keep justice. Do righteousness. Furthermore, he says, whoever keeps the Sabbath, he'll be blessed. And whoever keeps his hand from doing evil, he also will be blessed. When we read about people keeping the Sabbath, who do you think of in the Old Testament? Who do we think of? We think of the people of God. Now, God gave them the Sabbath and commanded, demanded that they keep it holy, that they, that they let it to reorient their entire lives. That they, when they get that seven-day period, the first thing that they do is say, I'm going to give a day to God. I'm not going to give him the, 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 the last bit, what I have left over. I'm going to, at the beginning, reorder my entire life. I'm going to give him a day first. That changes everything. Who do we think of? We think of the Jews. We think of God's chosen people. And yet, at the same time, in verse 3, God says, Let not the foreigner... Let not the Gentile who has joined himself to the Lord, who's come into the temple, who's come to receive salvation, who's working in some way, as much as it is possible to keep the commands and hope that God will accept him. He says, let not him think that God will separate him from his people. Furthermore, he says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry, withered, cursed tree. He says, no, to all of you, to all nations, if you keep my Sabbath, if you hold fast to my covenant, he says, I'll give you something more than a name, than a human name. I'll give you something more than daughters and sons. He says, I will join you with my people. I'll join you to my name and I'll give you a name, my name that will last forever. And nobody will cut you off from me. This is Isaiah chapter 56. Furthermore, in verse 7, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all people, Jew, Gentile, eunuchs, everybody. If you're an outcast, God is gathering you into his house. That's what Isaiah 56 is about. Jesus is referencing that. God's commanding his people to obey the covenant. If they do it, they will be blessed. And then he turns to the Gentiles and he says, that invitation is for you as well. You might think you're outside of my blessing. You might think you're outside of my covenant, but you are not. This harkens back to even the testimony that we looked at last week, the prophecy found in Genesis chapter 3, that God would crush the head of the serpent through the descendant of Eve. And that in Genesis chapter 12, that God would bless all the families, all the nations. Every ethnic people group would be blessed through Jesus Christ. It's holding to that promise. It's interesting, though, I, maybe you already caught this, that the, the language there in verse 3, that the, the Gentile particularly the eunuch uses of himself, is that he is a dry, dead tree. Like, as if he'll never have a name for himself. His family will soon, when he dies, his name will die with him. He won't bear any children. His name won't live on. In some sense, he'll be forgotten, and God says, you will not be forgotten. Though in some ways you are a dry tree, you will be joined to my family. You will receive my name and that will last for all of eternity. He calls himself a dry tree, unable to reproduce, barren. And yet God likens the people of Israel to a dry tree. He likens the the people of Israel to a fig tree that is not bearing fruit and ends up being cursed. So the tree that thinks it's all that and a bag of figs is cursed. And the tree that thinks it's barren and worthless is joined to Christ, is joined to God and welcomed in and receives grace. In Jeremiah chapter 7, the Lord is calling His people to repent. They're, they're taking for granted that the Lord dwelt with them in His holy temple. Holy is the Lord. He lives in His temple. They, they're trusting in that. 
And yet at the same time, they're practicing all sorts of debauchery. The temple is a, supposed to be a place of piety and prayer, and yet Jeremiah says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it has become a den of robbers. People coming to God on the outside, looking pure, looking clean, doing the thing that they're supposed to do, and at the same time, they're full of theft and lying and adultery and envying and murder. And yet they're still coming to the temple to make sacrifice so that they can have some semblance of worship. And God calls them to repent. He calls them to change their ways. Else he'll wither them up like a scorched tree. The warning goes like this. He says, have you seen the first, the initial resting place of the tabernacle? Does anybody know where the tabernacle first rested? Where it's most famous place was many of you don't know some of you possibly the name of the city or the town is called shiloh there's a reason why you don't know the name shiloh one you don't read your bible just kidding Uh, the other reason is god cursed that area and he removed the place that was housing his tabernacle that was housing his glory he moved it from there eli that high priest and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they served as priests there at the tabernacle in Shiloh. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 1. But these guys, particularly Hophni and Phinehas, they were wicked, wicked dudes. They were supposed to be servants of the temple, servants of God, but all they did was steal from people and abuse the, the people with their power. And as you know, God saw their wicked acts and he promised to remove the priestly line from, Levi, or from Eli. He promised to remove the line and that the, the priestly line would not go through Hophni and Phinehas. And so after the death of Eli and his evil sons, which is quite a story if you want to read about that in 1 Samuel, after that, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was there in Shiloh, um, or was housed there in Shiloh, it's, it's lost it's taken, it's taken by the enemy, and uh, from that point forward, the city of Shiloh, that town is sort of just forgotten. Just, just is almost erased, in a sense cursed. And just as in the days of Eli, the people of God were acting wickedly in the time of Jesus. They were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him, as Mark chapter 7 says. Their hearts were far from God. Isaiah prophesied that. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Their worship is vanity. It's worthless. It teaches doctrine, the commandments of men. In Jeremiah chapter 7, God is threatening a final judgment. He's threatening or removing them from the land, uh, 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 threatening to remove them from access to worship of God, the one true God there in Jerusalem. You see, the, the temple of God, it was meant to, to represent the presence of God living amongst his people, living amongst humans again, just as in the Garden of Eden. The Jews were, instead of inviting in all nations. They were crowding out the Gentile. Furthermore, they were actually praying that Messiah would come, yes, and purge the Gentiles even from the Temple Mount out of the court of the Gentiles. They didn't even want the Gentiles to be in there praying. It's interesting, just a fact. This is helpful for us. It's not too hard for us to imagine this. How do you think Mark's first audience, the Romans, the Christians there in Rome, how do you think they would receive this this teaching, this history lesson. Jesus did what? Oh, what, what, that's a reference to Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. Can you, can, you, can, you, can you find that scripture and tell me what it... You're kidding. The house of God is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, Romans included? Every people group? That's incredible. It's not too hard for us to imagine. Why? Because as our brother Brett said... We are a part of that group. We're part of that nations of the earth coming to God and being blessed. So the Romans, the Roman Christians, they're excited to read about this and to hear about this. I'm sure that we are as well. But verse 18 tells us about a group that's not so excited. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, 
And they were seeking a way to destroy him, speaking of Jesus, for they feared him. Why did they fear him? Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching and not their teaching. Jesus is offering correction. They're like, hey, yeah, let's, uh, let's push the Gentiles out. Let's bring in some stalls. I tell you what, they're going to be here any moment now. Let's make sure that we really get them this year. We want the uh, tourist uh, uh, economy just to be booming here in Jerusalem, folks. And so let's, let's make sure that we take advantage at every turn. And uh, also, don't forget to say your prayers this week that the Messiah would come and that when he comes, he would just rid us of these filthy, filthy Gentiles. Let's do that, all right? All right, break. That's the teaching of the chief priest. And yet Jesus comes and through the very words of God, he exposes the real meaning. And he exposes the sin that these leaders were leading them to. Jesus enters into his house, suddenly coming into his temple, and he is beginning to set things in order. And that makes some serious waves for those who think they're in authority. He undermines before the people the clearance and allowance of these wicked vendors to be present. He undermines the very rule of the high priest. And from that point on, there's just no turning back. Of course, Jesus didn't intend to do that. He didn't didn't intend to turn back, and yet at this point, he has gained the attention of them. He preaches this sermon. He condemns the evil hypocrites who are crowding out the Gentiles, and he sets things in order, not even letting people walk across and use the court of the Gentiles for anything but prayer, for anything but worship. And you see that G- what Jesus prophesied there as he walked from up the road from Jericho into Jerusalem. You see it beginning to take shape. He said he'd be killed. And now here we see his murderers are finding their motive. And they hate him. They have no intention of letting this action slide. And they intend to make him pay. But look at verse 19. And when even came, evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. In light of Jeremiah 7, I want you to catch this, that the fig tree was scorched. Really, it it testifies to the deity of Jesus of Nazareth. That Jesus could draw this parallel between this fig tree that he scorched and the religious rulers of Israel demonstrates that he is God incarnate. That he could curse something would be a claim to be God. That it withered was a confirmation of his claim. In Jeremiah 7, the Lord God, Yahweh, is, is really shown to have cursed Shiloh. Do you remember Shiloh? Do you remember that dead tree that wasn't producing any fruit? I cursed it and now nobody even knows about it. In the 21st century, they won't even know about it. In the same way that God did that in Jeremiah 7, or at least it's recorded there, Jesus, in line with that, Yahweh assessed the lives and the worship of the Jews there of that day and he pronounces judgment. For Jesus to cleanse the temple on the heels of cursing the fig tree is, is, is telling. Or, or I should say it's screaming. I am that I am. I, the Lord, have suddenly come into my temple. I, the Lord, have suddenly come to make things right. By whose standard did he curse the temple? By whose standard was he cursing Israel? By his own standard. What he had determined it to exist for, it wasn't being met. And so they're cursed. But here we see the second point that I wanted you to get this morning is the predictions of God are always fulfilled. And we kind of saw that last week. These far-reaching promises made thousands of years before the time of, over a thousand years before the time of Christ were fulfilled by Christ, even though so much time had passed. And yet here still we see the promise that that, in the form of a curse, that that tree would be cursed, was met within 24 hours. 
The predictions of God are always fulfilled. We're going to read just in a little bit how Jesus says that the temple will be destroyed. It's hard to fathom the, the temple with stones as massive as they were, with as much gold and power and beauty as it shone, that it could ever be destroyed. And yet Jesus claims that it will be destroyed. In less than 40 years it was. The Romans destroyed the temple, and in many ways, Jerusalem had become now the next what? It had become the next Shiloh. Today, in the very place of that spectacular temple that Jesus could see as he walked across the Kidron Valley, either going into Jerusalem or going back to Bethany at either time of day, that beautiful temple, that temple mount, the temple's gone. And in its place today, is an Islamic shrine built for the worship of a false god. Shiloh. The glory of God indeed has departed from the temple just as it did in Shiloh. No more is there a temple made of bricks and gold. It was destroyed long ago. Almost 2,000 years ago. At the same time, we don't need a temple anymore. The new covenant makes clear that the, 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 the abode, the house, the tabernacle of God is no longer to be a building, but is, it is to be a people. So we, as members of the new covenant, we don't worry too much. The Apostle Paul tells us that our bodies are the temples of God. Jesus, though, he saw the smoke of the temple rising up from afar, the flickering of the temple courtyard fires lighting up the walls, beautiful as it was, when he came in and inspected the scene, he found that the temple was not bearing fruit, just like the fig tree. Just like the fig tree. And in line with his thinking, I, I have to ask you this, as the Lord has asked me through this text, are there leaves on your tree? Now, first and foremost, this passage is about Jesus cursing, in a sense, the religious worship there in the temple and saying that it's empty, saying the same thing, picturing that with the fig tree. But there's a second application. We can say that, yes, that happened. But the same way that God dealt with Israel is the same way that He will deal with you. If your body's the temple, are you producing fruit like the fig tree, as in you're not? Are you producing fruit like the temple? You, the high priest of your own heart? What's taking place in there? What's in your heart? You may have covered your bases. You may be looking the part, but is it possible that inside you are full of sins? You are full of evil workings. If that's the case for you, Jesus is looking to you this morning and He's saying, turn from these things. Jeremiah 7, Isaiah 56, turn from those things. Keep His commandments. Keep His covenant. Do justice. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is a righteous judge. He is a righteous judge who will judge every single action and every single deed against His original purpose for your life. He'll weigh each work. He will judge according to His perfect will according to His revealed written word, and His judgment will be swift. And yet at the same time, with patience and with kindness, He calls out this morning by way of this text, calling us to turn, calling us to receive grace, calling us to bear fruit in keeping with turning from these evil deeds, from turning from this evil, empty, vain, religious works. The fig tree, it had a set purpose to fulfill. That's what's being pictured for us. And it didn't do it. And it was judged accordingly. And it glorified God in another way. It served its purpose in the negative respect. Similarly, the people of God caring for the temple there and worshiping there, they had a purpose as well and they strayed from it also. And they were judged. I want you to just think about your own life this morning. What purpose has God designed you for? What purpose? 
You say, well, I'm only 15. I don't really know that I have a purpose. Of course you do. You have a purpose. Your purpose, regardless of your age or your gender, is to glorify God. Now, there are more specific ways. Maybe you'll glorify God by being a, a child that obeys mom and dad. Dreams of serving the Lord with your life, with your career in the, in the future. Maybe serving as a missionary or an evangelist even in your clump of cubicles. Maybe you just glorify God by being a good church member. It may sound menial. But God, as we learned in the equipping hour this morning, God has determined that we do that. And we bring Him glory through that. Maybe we do it as just by being a, 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 a faithful spouse or a faithful young man. There's a special calling on each of our lives that God has said, I've created you for this purpose. You're to glorify me and your life. And there's a special double calling on the life of a Christian. We've been bought with a price. Our body is not our own. Our time is not our own. Our finances are not our own. In some small way, we think, oh, if we do these things, oh, then we satisfy God and we look like we're really truly worshiping Him. But at the same time, in our heart of hearts, we're saying, we worship another God. And there's really no fruit to speak of. Perhaps that's the case in your life. If it is, Jesus is calling to you this morning. And he's saying, repent. Furthermore, I want you to catch this. This is a huge part of this text. Matter of fact, I think it might be the main idea. And it's this. If your worship of God in some way involves the preclusion of others coming to Him, repent. I want that to rest on your shoulders for a minute. Think about that. If your worship of God in some way involves the preclusion or prevention of others coming to Him, repent. You say, well, what would that look like in my life? Well, in the life of the of the high priest, it might look like bringing in a bunch of robbers and getting your own cut as people come in to worship the Lord. I don't expect that that's taking place in Hagerstown very much, not in this place anyway. And so you might say, well, how, how can I really apply this? How would I know if, if my worship or attempt to worship God in some way that is honoring to Him actually involves the prevention or the, the hindering of others coming to Him? How would I know that? I've got three I've got three broad examples to share with you. Maybe you could ask yourself. Maybe this would be a good conversation for you and your wife, you and your loved ones or friends, maybe in your D group, maybe your life group. But anyway, I would say the first one is hypocrisy. The first one is hypocrisy. And before we talk about hypocrisy, I want you to know this. Hypocrisy is not you being a sinner. Not you being a failure, but hypocrisy is saying one thing out of one side of your mouth and doing the exact opposite. That's hypocrisy. Lots of times Christians are accused unfairly of being hypocrites. But really, truly, you know the cliche. We don't sit in these pews because we're perfect. We sit in here because we're what? Sinners. And yet that's not what I'm talking about this morning. We're all sinners. And yet... There are times in our lives, sadly it's true of me even, that we say one thing and we do another. In the New Testament, that word that we, where we get hypocrisy has this idea of wearing a mask. Not your real face, something different. Being an actor. Isaiah said, they honor me, speaking of God, speaking for God, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. One author who's often quoted, I'm sure you've heard this before, he said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Think about this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their, li by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Hypocrisy. Standing in the way of sinners who would come to Christ. Hypocrisy. To that, Jesus says, repent. 
to that, Jesus says, repent. What about arrogance? What about arrogance? Thinking yourself to be better than another. It's related to hypocrisy, but it's different. Arrogance is void of the gospel, which actually declares that God's grace is, is, is joined with your heinous evil acts. Jesus takes your sin and he gives you Christ's righteousness. He gives, him, gives you his righteousness. It's grace. Grace covering your evil acts. Atonement taking place. And yet arrogance ignores that. Arrogance forgets that. Arrogance has no place, though, in the heart of a Christian. It has no place in the church. It preaches a message of self-help. It preaches a message of works, and it's not the gospel. And arrogance is a message. It preaches a message of damnation, both for the practitioner and for the observer. Those who preach it are in danger of damnation, and those who witness it are also in danger. Church, there's no place for arrogance. There's no place stands in the way of sinners coming to Christ. And to that, Jesus says this morning, repent. I recognize these are general categories for you to be thinking through, and perhaps you'll have more to share in your life group. If you have others that you see would be a hindrance, I'd love to, love to have you text that to me or, one, or, or to Chris, or maybe even message us on Facebook or comment on the sermon. That'd be great to see. Hypocrisy, arrogance. I've got one more, though. It's idleness. Idleness. It's in regard to the Great Commission. How can our worship of God in some ways preclude others from coming to Him? Idleness. In regards to the Great Commission that has been given to every single Christian to go into every part of the world and to preach the Gospel to every creature, to every nation, to baptize them, to disciple them, And yet, for so many of us, we're plagued with idleness. And in that way, we stand in the way of the world coming to Jesus. We've talked about this often as a church, young as we are, we've talked about it often. That the Lord determines the time and place of our dwelling. That God in His sovereignty has placed you in the, the house that you live with the neighbors that live next to you. And so when you see that neighbor move in and you think, oh, that's interesting. They must really like this neighborhood. They must love Frederick Street, Chris. Well, that might be true. But the divine providence of God has placed them on that particular street. And there's a theme in the Bible that says the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth like what? Like waters cover the earth. That's the, that's the prediction that's what we're moving towards. The glory, of, the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth like waters cover the sea. And part of the way that that's going to be fulfilled by God's providence is that His people will not stand in the way, but they'll go out of their way to preach the gospel to those who are in need and they will not be idle. So think about that in your life. As you consider your worship of God, does it, involve, does it involve hypocrisy? Does it involve arrogance? Does it involve idleness? If it does in any way, as it does in my own life, Jesus is calling to you and he's saying, repent. He's saying, repent and get out of the way. You, Christian, who bear the name of God, when, when people come, by, or, or come to you, when they pass by, do they receive the blessings of God? Or do you rob them? Or do you rob them? As we did last week, I just want to invite you to take a time of reflection. So where you sit now, I just want to invite you to bow your head, to close your eyes, and to ask God, to speak to you right now and to reveal in your heart what's hindering those in your life and your sphere of influence from coming to God. Again, maybe it's hypocrisy in your life. It's so hard to see hypocrisy in our own lives save we have a mirror. So through the Word of God and friends holding that mirror, 
Maybe the Lord's asking you or calling you to, to do some soul searching in community. Perhaps somebody's even brought that to your attention recently. Hypocrisy in your own life. Are you willing to repent of that? Maybe it's arrogance. Maybe it's idleness. Maybe it's something completely different. I'm fully aware this morning that Jesus is far more capable of bringing conviction. The Holy Spirit is far more capable and only capable of bringing conviction in your life where I fall short and the rest of this church does as well. So I invite you in just a moment as I pray, would you pray that God would reveal that to you? And would you pray with me and would you work with me to see the glory of the, the knowledge of the glory of God cover the earth, that he would, it would cover Hagerstown like the waters cover the earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truths that we've seen in this text this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you are patient with your disciples. You're patient with us and you use things that we can understand, object lessons. God, we thank you that you have not given us some relative truth or standard, but that you have clearly determined the the purpose of our lives and the purpose of our worship. It's not to be spent on ourselves, our own desires, our own idols, but it's all to be expended for you because you alone are worthy. You've you've set the value and the purpose of our lives. And we thank you for that revelation. Furthermore, God, we praise you because you are infinite in knowledge. And every word that you speak comes to pass. Jesus, whether it takes 24 hours or whether it takes 2,400 years, we know that your promises are true. We celebrate that this morning. And God, we've pro- you have promised us that your glory will cover this earth. God, we long for that. We are obedient to you this morning. We pray that you'd work that in our lives and our hearts, that we would work toward that end, believing your promises that your glory will cover this earth once again as it once did. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus for his glory. Amen.